Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, even as Your Son shined with radiant glory on the Mount of Transfiguration, so may His light shine into our hearts and indeed shine into our world, overcoming all darkness. May we share in His glory. We thank You for the perfect life and death of Your Son, for His resurrection and His present reign. We thank You for His promise to come again in glory at the last day and to bring us into His new creation through the resurrection. And now, dear Lord, through the new and living way He has opened for us into Your heavenly sanctuary, we come boldly before Your throne of grace today to obtain mercy and to find grace in our, in our time of need. We pray these things, O Father, giving You thanks and praise in the power of Your Holy Spirit and in the name of Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The lesson of the day comes from the epistle reading. I'll just remind you of the first verse there that we will focus on this morning from 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 12. Hear now the word of our God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. O Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Jesus, our rock and our near kinsman. Amen. Amen. It has been a joy to be with you this weekend and uh, enjoy some time. Also, I must say selfishly with uh, uh, Rich and Jenny, it's been a, a, we don't get to visit with him enough and it is a joy to be with him. He is a great friend and has been a great help through the years and I've stolen a lot of his material through the years and you may be hearing it again this morning. So just to let you know that. You know, a common question in school and it's usually asked by males is, will this be on the test? I've asked that many times myself, and I know that it's, uh, it's probably something genetic that manifests itself while, it's, while we're in school. And the intent of the question is not the insatiable quest for knowledge, but wondering whether or not I need to waste my time learning something for which I'm not going to be tested. What I really want to do is get by with doing as little as possible. I only want to know the items that, I, that will be on which I will be tested so that I can get my grade and go on to the fun stuff. Now, all of us at some time in our lives want to get away with doing the bare minimum. We don't enjoy this particular activity, and we want to do the minimum and get out of there as fast as we can. And sometimes that's appropriate. For instance, when you're dealing with the IRS. Minimal, short answers. Generally, the Christians are called to a higher standard, though, than a checklist. We We aren't merely ticking marks off a box or but but we should be living in a way that strives for the best for what is best for ourselves and for those around us this morning i want to take some time to talk to you about living in ways that are profitable and not merely legal and we'll do this by exploring paul's first statement that i read to you all things are lawful but not all things are helpful or all things are profitable. Let me take a little time to tell you where we are in the context. Paul has been dealing with the Corinthian Christians' discernment about issues. That is, they are having some problems in making good judgments, good decisions. They have been judging by the wrong standards and therefore they're coming to some wrong conclusions. They've adopted the world's wisdom instead of judging according to the wisdom of God revealed in Christ crucified. And for this reason, they're combining their newfound faith 
and all what they believe about its liberties with worldly wisdom. And that is a recipe for disaster in the church. People are using their real or perceived rights to gain an advantage over others. They are insisting upon their rights. And this is contrary to the message of the cross and the cruciform life that the Christian and the church as a whole is supposed to be living. And this is manifested, for example, in these Christians taking one another to court, which is at the beginning of chapter 6. They are trying to use their power and what they may even, what may even be their legal rights to oppress or get the advantage over others in the church. And Paul tells them that they have completely misunderstood what it means to live the cross-shaped life or the cruciform as a cruciformed community, a people who are in union with the crucified Christ. So in a not so subtle way, Paul intimates in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 6, that if they insist on living this way, they will meet the fate of all those who live these types of lifestyles. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. They are different, and they should act differently. He says that they have been delivered from all of these lifestyles, having been washed, sanctified, and justified. And now, they need to live a life that reflects the wisdom of God revealed in Christ. A wisdom that doesn't insist upon its rights, but freely gives oneself up for the good of those whom he loves. Paul was there in Corinth for about 18 months. Recently, he had heard reports about what was going on there in his absence. He knows these people. He's heard that they are distorting what he taught with the slogan, All things are lawful. I don't doubt that this could have been taken from what Paul actually taught. He was probably talking about the law of Moses and how Jesus is the end or the fulfillment of the law, just like he does in Romans chapter 10 and verse 4. All of those old structures have been transformed. But they distorted this to mean, it seems, no more law at all. They believe that they are laws unto themselves, determining for themselves what is right and wrong. And any time this happens, the law is not done away with. It is just that each person is a lawmaker who, who is insistent that everyone abides by his laws. This is his right, and no one has the right to trample his rights. No one has the right to make him feel uncomfortable about his rights. And this anti-law streak, combined with a wrong view of the body, is absolutely lethal. Now, we're only reading one side of the conversation, but we can pick up on the fact that here that Paul is dealing with people who believe that the body is really not all that important. It really serves no purpose now. It, uh, it has no function now in this new creation. There seems to, there seems to have been this body spirit dualism that rendered the body useless. The, 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 the spirit was the only thing that really mattered. And because of this, what you did with your body didn't matter. And so the the Corinthians have come to this new liberty in Christ, which they have distorted, and they have combined this with a perverted view of their bodies. And so when they say all things are lawful, they mean something totally different than what Paul meant. And so Paul sets out to correct them. But it is interesting the way Paul corrects them. Paul doesn't say, no, all things are not lawful. He could have said this. He makes it quite clear within the context that joining one's body to the body of a prostitute is indeed 
unlawful. And there are other places in Paul's writings that he makes it clear that these things are unlawful. He's recently told the Corinthians that there are certain lifestyles that are unlawful and those who live them will not inherit the kingdom of God. So Paul is not beyond saying, this is law, this is unlawful and you ought not be doing this. But he takes a different trek. A trek consistent with how he has been teaching them to think and live in terms of the cross. Paul is giving the Corinthians a completely new way of thinking. He's giving them really new questions to ask about what they do. He's not giving them a checklist to mark off that they have done this or simply to feel bad when they haven't done that. He is telling them that there is a different way of thinking altogether that they must adopt. It is, it is not one that asks, what can I get away with in this situation? Or what are my rights here? Rather, they are to ask, how do I reflect the self-sacrificing wisdom of God revealed in Christ here? What is the best? What is the most helpful and the most profitable thing for me to do in this situation for myself and those around me? This was not the way that they were thinking. Indeed, it was quite the opposite. The Corinthian Christians had distorted quite a bit about several things, and this is what led them to think that the way, the way that they did. And so in order to set them straight, Paul has to redefine some things for them. In order to give them a new way of thinking, they must start seeing God themselves and the world around them in a new way. And like the Corinthians, we must also see things the way Paul is laying them out here so that we can live according to the wisdom of God. And what we see in the Corinthian situation is the fruit of the real problem. In order to deal with the bad fruit, he has to get to the root of the problem. So Paul's answer to their slogan, all things are lawful, is, but not all things are profitable. Not all things are helpful. But how do we know what is profitable for us? What one person thinks is profitable may may not be what another person thinks is profitable. So even to begin to answer that question of what is profitable, we have to dig down and understand what our purpose is as human beings. Anytime a business wants to be profitable, it must know what its aims, what its goals are. If a business doesn't know whether it is supposed to make pizzas or automobiles, it's going to flounder around and eventually die because it has no identity. You don't know what you're there for. There's no sense of direction. What if... What would be even worse is that if the local barbecue joint over here started trying to build Mercedes-Benz. They are, they, they are not equipped to do this, and they ultimately fail. So to understand our purpose, we have to ask one of life's most basic questions. Who am I? And only then will, will we be able to answer the question, what is my purpose? See, the Corinthians had distorted the purpose of their creation and their redemption. And again, if the body has no purpose beyond this life, do with it what you will. The highest good for the body is to make it comfortable and therefore pleasure it as much as possible because there is no eternal purpose for the body. It's just going to die. It's going to become worm dirt. There's no, no, no future for the body. And when a person sees no purpose in this or that activity, he is not motivated to engage in, the act, in, in that activity, no matter how much you tell him it is good for him. 
And so we expect this kind of thinking, for example, from those with evolutionary worldviews, that is, if they are consistent, which they're not completely all the time, because you're just an evolved blob of impulses with no purpose beyond this life. And so because, because, because of this, your highest good is to be as comfortable as possible and to engage in as much as makes you feel good as possible. So why worry about things such as right and wrong? There is no judgment coming, and therefore there's no purpose beyond this life. Do with your body what you will. And while we should expect this from those who hold that mindset, you wouldn't think that this would be a problem in the Corinthian church. But it is a problem that Paul is dealing with. Christians have indeed adopted the wisdom of the world. And the Corinthians don't understand who God created and recreated them to be, and thus they don't understand their purpose. And throughout his letter thus far, Paul has already taught them some of the fundamentals of who they are. And only as they adopt this definition of themselves, as God defines them in Christ, will they live properly and understand what is truly profitable in their lives. They will be fruitful only when they work for the purpose God constructed and tooled them to work. So without a proper understanding of who they are and their purpose, their understanding of what is profitable and what is not profitable will be radically different from Paul's understanding. For example, if their bodies are just merely disposable shells, what is profitable to do everything I, I what is profitable to do is to do everything that pleases me, making myself comfortable as possible to, until the time I shed all this body, and that means I'm not concerned about you. That is the opposite of this cruciform life that Christ has given us an example of. Fundamental to Paul's understanding of man is that man is in the image and likeness of God, as we heard in Genesis this morning. The body is made by the Lord and for the Lord, and the body, the body is in the image of the Lord. This is, this is not a mere characteristic of man. This is not something bolted onto our real being. This is who man is. Fundamentally, he is created as a living, breathing, walking, talking symbol or type of God in his body, in his flesh. Man is a reflection of his creator. And it's clear from Genesis, man is created as an individual who lives in relationship with God and others around him. And this relational aspect of man is a part of who man is as the image of God. And once a man understands who he is as the image of God, then he begins to learn his purpose, answering questions such as, why am I here? Am I here to reflect the image of God? I am here to reflect the image of God. I am to grow up into greater and greater likeness of who God is. I am made to be like him. I am made to reflect his character. That is my purpose in life. It takes on all sorts of details, but that is my ultimate purpose in life, is to reflect my Creator and my Redeemer. I am to look and act like God in my individual person, and that includes relating to people in the same way God relates to Himself as Father, Son, and Spirit, and to the world outside of Himself. So how do I know what this looks like? I've got the big picture. How do I know what this looks like? Paul has already told the Corinthians what it looks like. It looks like Christ crucified. A message that is foolishness to the Greeks is a stumbling block to the Jews. But this is God revealed to us. He shows us who he is. He shows us what our lives individually and together are to look like in Christ. 
This is what it means to be in the image of God. This is the mindset, the way of thinking, the perspective that we are to take in. In dealing with the Philippians, Paul spells it out quite directly in Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves. That is, take on this way of thinking as a church. Have this mind among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in the form as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Paul says this is the mind, this is the way of thinking that we have in our lives together. And so my purpose in life is the image of God is to reflect the life of God revealed in Christ. A life that gives itself up for the sake of others. My purpose is not to insist upon my own rights, but freely give up my real or perceived rights when others are genuinely benefited. And when we live in this way, we are operating in a way and for the purpose for which God created us. So understanding this is fundamental. The first thing that must be done then is to accept this definition of who you are and thus your purpose. By faith, you accept this and what defines your life and consequently your vocation in life. You accept God's definition of you as created and redeemed in Christ Jesus. And so just a side note here, a person's acceptance or rejection of this definition of his person and purpose doesn't change the definition. At this point, the person is simply refusing to heed the manufacturer's manual, so to speak. You can believe that a car is a boat, convincing yourself thoroughly of it, but if you try to take it out for a sale, you're going to be sorely disappointed. You can believe that your gasoline car is going to run on sand, but if you fill the gas tank with sand, you're going to ruin the engine. And just so acting contrary to your identity as the image of God is destructive for you individually and in your relationships, and it's destructive for the church. You're trying to operate outside the parameters for which you were made. And in this process, you're destroying yourself and you're destroying others. This is what sin is. This is what sin does. Sin is the misuse, the abuse of the perversion of God's creation and his purpose for it. And so if you're going to have real life, you must operate according to that for which you were made and remade in Christ Jesus. So having established our identity and our purpose, we're now ready to answer the question, what is indeed profitable? So what is profitable is determined by who we are and our purpose. Anything contrary to that design and purpose is destructive. Anything that works with and conforms to the design and purpose of our creation and recreation is profitable. So as mentioned earlier, Paul is not giving them a checklist. He's not giving them a set of rules. They are to live according to the wisdom of God revealed in Christ. There are things that are clearly lawful and unlawful. There are certain things that must be avoided and certain things that must be done. And those things are understood. Those are basic. Those are the things of childhood. Having, having a list of rules is, is the stuff of childhood and immaturity. This is what God gave to the, to Israel in childhood, according to what Paul says in Galatians 3 and 4. They had all those rules, and rules are good for children. They need rules. They need certain checklists that will help them to develop their thinking in the right direction. But when you mature, you find out that there aren't 
black and white rules for everything. And you have to learn to make decisions where everything is not so clear as to whether or not you took out the trash. Okay. Paul is calling on them to a new way of thinking. And when we get into these rules mindset, we tend to get into thinking, what am I allowed to do? And what I am, what am I not allowed to do? And it is a very short step from here to home in on what I am allowed to do as my rights and then insist upon them, no matter who it hurts. Now, we see this quite often in our circles in the churches. Some of us grew up under a lot of extra biblical constraints. We were told... Don't drink, don't dance, don't use tobacco, don't go to the movies, don't listen to secular music, don't play cards, whatever. And seeking to be pleasing to God, many of us tried to live with those constraints. And then one day we realized that the Bible not only doesn't teach that, but in some of these cases, Paul says that these are the doctrines of demons. And so we come into this new understanding and this freedom that we now have in Christ. But because of the craftiness of sin that works in our bodies, we tend to move toward sinful excess in these things. And as we do this, we just dare someone to bring it up to us. We have chapter and verse about why the use of these things is completely lawful. In fact, we can point, we've written a paper on it somewhere. We've got something. We can point you to a website, a link. To tell you why this is all lawful. And no matter how we appear before others, no matter how off-putting our attitudes or our actions may be to others, we are free in Christ to do these things. See, it's right here in 1 Timothy. And we insist upon our rights. So why we are correct about the facts of food and drinks and other such things, the fact that they are not unlawful to use, we have missed the point completely. There may be times in which insisting upon our freedom to use these things is actually unprofitable. And that should be the constraint upon us as mature and maturing Christians. See, Paul expands upon this greatly later in this letter in chapters 8 through 10. And there he deals with the fact that some believers in Corinth understand that idols are nothing and therefore they eat meat offered to idols. To eat meat offered to idols is perfectly legit. And Paul agrees. That's right. There's nothing wrong with that meat. But one thing that they must always do is consider the context in which they eat the meat. The meat itself is lawful, but eating the meat in a pagan worship service is unlawful because the context gives the eating of the meat a particular meaning that is not appropriate for Christians. You're dining at the table of demons, he says. He also tells them that they shouldn't eat meat at a pagan dinner party if someone points out to them that the meat was sacrificed to an idol. The meat is not inherently evil, but when it creates a genuine problem for a brother and causes him to stumble into sin, then that is a problem. See, as Christians, we don't just operate on the rule that it's okay and therefore I may do this anytime and anywhere. I must always be thinking about what is profitable, what is helpful. I must make decisions about what is the best thing to do in this particular situation. So there are things that are unquestionably wrong. For example, participating in a pagan worship service. But there are other things that are uh, perfectly legit. 
in one co- context that are not not right in another context. There's nothing wrong with drinking bourbon. Okay? Bourbon is not only not evil, it is one of the greatest liquid gifts that God has ever given man. Okay? I say that as living in Kentucky. The Zion of bourbon. But if I were up here during the sermon sucking down a fifth while teaching, that wouldn't be appropriate. It may help my sermon, but it wouldn't be appropriate. I may say all kinds of things. So as a believer, I have to be asking myself the question, what is the best thing to do in this situation? How do I reflect the self-giving nature of God and do what is best for me and those around me? So I'm not asking here, when I get into a situation, what can I get away with? Or merely, what is my legal right? Because many times when I start asking those questions, I'm probably trying to justify not doing what is best in the situation, but instead insisting on doing what I want to do. So let's begin to put some shoe leather on this. Let's say that you're in a situation much like Paul describes at the beginning of this chapter. Some other Christian wants to drag you to court for some reason. You know you're in the right. And you know that you have a legal right to battle this guy in court and to get your due. But you also know that if you insist upon your rights here and fight this, it's going to bring disrepute to the name of Christ. And on the other hand, if you don't fight this, this is going to cost you financially. And so you start thinking, well, I know the biblical doctrine of private property and I know that I can protect that. And and you go through all these reasonings and you have it weighed the other side about what is profitable here. What is profitable for the name of Christ? In in this case, you know that it's going to be a bad witness before the world and will drag Christ's name through the mud. And so you ask yourself again, what is profitable? It may be that the action that best reflects the wisdom of God in this situation is to allow yourself to be defrauded, as Paul instructs the Corinthians to do. This is one of those things that may be out there for some people. So let's get a little closer to home. Let me talk to you children just for a moment. What about insisting on doing what you want to do? And if everybody doesn't do what you want to do, you're just not going to play. This is how how far it goes down. You're going to insist upon your rights to the point that you're not going to do what's profitable for anybody. So how about giving up what you want to do and insisting on you, uh, on your way for the sake of others? There are times that giving up what is lawful in itself is the right thing to do. Paul himself gives up his right to marriage and to be compensated by the Corinthians because it was best in that particular situation. Both of those things were completely lawful. In, in 1 Corinthians 9, even Paul says, look, I could insist upon being compensated or, or, or supported by you. Those things are perfectly lawful, but he didn't do so. And so there are some today who do sort these sorts of things for the kingdom. These things shouldn't be pressed upon everyone, but there are some who actually should do these things. Is it lawful for you to pursue a career? 
in and of itself. There's no problem with a man or woman pursuing a career. In fact, it's honorable. But how does your choice of career impact your marriage or your parenting? You might say, well, everything's all right. It's a, it's a, it's a worthy vocation. Yes, it's a worthy vocation. I'm not asking that. I'm asking, is it profitable? Are you living for your own hopes and dreams as an individual? Or could you do something else so that you could be more profitable to your spouse and, your, and or your children? Those are the types of questions that as Christians we have to ask ourselves. Do you have the opportunity to take something less and be a better spouse and parent? Now sometimes that's not an option. That's one of the things about this situation is that it requires wisdom. We're not children anymore. We can't just say, well, this is the decision and, and it, it's, it, you know, it's very clear cut. You have to think through these things and sometimes just not anybody, nobody, nobody outside of yourself can give you this answer. You have to think. As I mentioned earlier, it is perfectly legal to enjoy God's gifts of alcohol. But do you insist upon your rights when you know it makes your brothers and sisters genuinely uncomfortable? What is more important to you in that situation? Having the alcohol or the lack of tension with you and your brothers and sisters? How profitable is that for the relationship? I'm not, I'm not saying you should deny that you imbibe or hide everything when a person comes over. Uh, or anything like that. But I'm saying that your relationship with that person is more important than food and drink. See, don't try to show how liberated you are by being in your face with your liberty. Once you do that, you have become enslaved to your own passions. And Paul says, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Don't be enslaved to your own passions. You have the right to, to, to have quiet evenings and Sunday afternoons. But what if a brother or sister needs encouragement that you could give through showing him or her hospitality or serving others at, at, at one of the mercy ministries you support? For others, you have the right to, to invite people over, but are you overdoing it for your own family? Men, are you wearing out your wives by having people over all the time? Would it be profitable to you and your family to guard some evenings and some Sunday afternoons. These are the ways we have to think. Paul has challenged us to think in a new way. It is not just about do's and don'ts, but about what is profitable. And what is profitable is me acting like Christ and living this cruciform life in real life relationships. But it goes even deeper. Living this way doesn't just involve my explicit actions toward people, but it considers how I shape myself through what I do in private and how I present myself. Let me deal with some sensitive subjects again since I'm leaving after the service. <laughs> some people where some some places where people insist upon their rights. Let's begin with music. Lots of us live our lives in our own little musical world with earbuds and you don't think you're bothering anyone. But how is the music that you're listening, listening to shaping your thinking? How is it shaping your person? Does your music make you improperly aggressive toward others? Or does it motivate you to be aggressive in righteousness and, and in a profitable way? Does your music leave you depressed or in despair? 
Does your music feed you a consistent diet of making you laugh or celebrate sinful actions? Or does it cause you to celebrate what is good and beautiful and pure? See, I'm not, I'm not saying that you sit around and listen to Psalms all the time. I'm, I'm asking, is your diet of music consistent with the pursuit of what is profitable? These are questions that we have to think through. What about our clothing? How are we dealing with it? Are you wanting to push the line making statements with your clothing that will draw unnecessary, inappropriate, and cheap attention to yourself? Or you, do you desire to draw appropriate attention to your character by what you do and achieve, minimizing the provocative attention of clothing, whether tight, revealing, or gaudy, men or women? Do you try to make rebellious statements with your clothing, or are you showing, are you showing that you're submissive and humble through your attire? See, anyone can use cheap tricks to get attention. It takes a person of substance to get the right kind of attention, but that takes time and effort and patience. It's easy simply to make a statement with your clothes or whatever to draw that attention. But is it profitable? It's not. We need also to think about the stories in which we immerse ourselves, whether through movies or books, because we are shaped by the stories that we enter. We get to know characters in a way that we don't get to know flesh and blood people in stories. When you read a novel, you are, you are entering into the minds of the characters in a way that you don't enter into the minds of anyone else. And so you are being shaped by these stories. This doesn't mean that you can never read a book with a cuss word in it or something like that. Sometimes those things are appropriate for the story. If we couldn't read th- things such as this, we couldn't even read the scriptures. But the scriptures contextualize sinful actions and show it for what it is. Righteousness is glorified, not disdained. Sin's ugliness and end are revealed in the scriptures. The stories in which you consistently immerse yourself will shape your ethical world because they draw you in and connect you emotionally to characters. They will teach you how to interact with other people. We need to see that we, we see this at the superficial level with people wanting to be like movie stars and holding them up as ethicists of our society. Politi- you know, what's the latest word, Ben Affleck, on politics? Really? Why do I want to listen to a bad Batman? <laughs> Stories are very powerful. They're engaging our total being because we become a part of these worlds for a while. But this is a world whose ethics and outcomes are dictated by the author. And so what is his point? How is he trying to get you to think about these characters and what they do? And is that profitable for you to have a consistent diet of those things? Are these stories glorifying unnecessary violence or noble violence? Are they glorifying sexual immorality instead of the beauties of proper sexual love? We must ask whether our, whether our friendships are profitable as well. So I was talking about in Sunday school, if Proverbs, for example, says not to make friendship with an angry man so that you won't learn his ways and become a snare to your soul. Paul will say in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians that bad company corrupts good morals. Are your friendships encouraging you to greater godliness and pushing you to excel or, or are your friendships bringing you down and encouraging you to settle for the mediocre? I'm not just talking about friendships with non-Christians, but also with Christians. 
Are you being that friend that other people can depend on to motivate them to godliness? See, we, we have to look at our free time and measure it by the same standard. Is the way I'm using my free time profitable or unprofitable? It may be technically lawful for me to do this or that, but is it profitable? For example, am I having so much fun in my free time that I'm not worth a thin dime for my family later? Am I going all the time so that I'm constantly fatigued so that even though I am with other people in body, I can't be fully engaged with them? There can, be, there can be a problem with having too much fun. I don't want to be a killjoy here. I'm just saying, look, well, we can do that. We, have that. we have that kind of leisure in our, in our society today. Of course, there could also be a problem with not doing anything fun. And that's just as unprofitable. In order to give yourself to people the way you ought, there needs to be a proper use of time and rest and play. Now, in all of this, I'm not saying that what is profitable is to sit around and read your Bible all the time. That would indeed be unprofitable because you're neglecting things that ought to be done. I am saying that as a Christian, you, you are to think about your situations, especially those situations where there is not a clear right and wrong answer. And ask yourself this question, what is profitable? What is the best thing to do in this situation? Not what can I get away with? Because that reveals the heart. That reveals a sinful heart, generally. Again, this goes beyond determining the legitimacy of the activity or the, the piece of food or, or, or that drink. This is about something more. It is about living. It is about living as Christ lived. It is about living in such a way so as to do what is best for others. And when this happens in the church, the bickering seems to diminish greatly. The pettiness and grudges seem to go away. The same thing happens in families and friendships, especially when people are on the same page in this way. I'm not saying that there will never ever be a disagreement again if you do these things. I'm saying that this gives you a way forward. A foundational way to think about how you should handle the situation. And so dear people of God, while there are many things that are lawful and can be properly enjoyed, let us think first about what is profitable refusing to insist upon our own rights and giving them up for the sake of those we love. Let us pray. Our gracious Father, we thank You for how You have revealed Yourself in Christ Jesus. And we pray that our lives as individuals and our lives together will conform to His life. Who... In the name of Him who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, age after age. Amen.